It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Saturday, August 26, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. The first debate is over, but there's another chance around the corner to make a mark next month with the second debate hosted by Fox Business. That audience and the audience at home, what do they really want to hear on Ukraine and Putin? What do they truly want you to do on the border and immigration? And of course, the last point is the former president and an indisputed frontrunner in absentia. I'm Ryan Schmelz. $3.5 trillion with 61% of the Pentagon's assets unaccounted for. Why does arguably the most important government agency to our national safety continue to fail audits? The Department of Defense is great at protecting our national security and terrible at accounting. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Heading into debate night in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was number two in the polls, far behind number one, former President Trump. But still, the expectation was, even according to his own campaign, that the candidates would be going after him. But it was tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy who took more of the incoming, especially from former Vice President Mike Pence and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. Everyone had a moment. It's just some had more than others. I will never let the deep state bureaucrats lock you down. I'm the only person on the stage who isn't bought and paid for, so I can say this. The climate change agenda is a hoax. I was a House conservative leader before it was cool. Margaret Thatcher said, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman. Now the stakes shift ahead of the second debate at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, hosted by Fox Business. In order to qualify, one needs to have at least 3% in polling and 50,000 unique donors. Either way, the debut debate performance may leave each candidate reflecting on what they did well and what maybe needs some work. I thought it was a phenomenal week for Fox News. I was excited to be part of it. And look, the Democrats could not have fielded a debate stage of eight people. Who would they be? Kellyanne Conway is the CEO of KAC Consulting and was a senior advisor to former President Trump. This is the undercard. This is like our B team. We have a good shot of beating Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. So what stood out, I guess, to you the most? I know that's a basic question, but I, I, what I mean by it is, was it, a, was it a, a moment or a one-liner or a person? Like what struck you the most? Those are great granular ways of asking that broad question, Jessica. And I would answer it this way. I'm not really big on the reaching for the rafters, trying to go viral, the temptation to have that big headline so much as who was steady, who showed a peripatetic knowledge of the issues, not just economic or domestic policy, but also what I would consider the more local and state issues, for example, crime and homelessness or school choice, for example, even healthcare. And then who who showed themselves to be ready to take on Putin and North Korea and a nuclear-capable Iran that's salivating at Israel, et cetera. So I think none of the candidates did themselves much harm. I can see them all, or pretty much all of them, making the debate stage for next month for the Fox Business debate at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley. But here's what stood out to me. Nikki Haley had a good night, and she had a good night not because she was the only woman on the stage. That's not my favorite part of her repertoire. She had a good night because she defended... Uh, women by saying, look, don't demonize and ostracize them 
when they have an abortion. And I think that's important. I'm a pro-lifer, but we need to save babies and serve women. She also just took it to Vivek Ramaswamy, who's been having a very popular moment. Um, he basically has stolen the joy on the job, woke agenda, youth and energy agenda, and shtick from Ron DeSantis a little bit. But she she pushed back on him by saying, you don't have any foreign policy experience that it shows. The thing for Nikki, though, is um, that Joe Biden's official Twitter account was basically live tweeting clips of Nikki Haley during the debate. They look at her comments um, denigrating Trump, Pence, Tim Scott, and Ron DeSantis for all voting. Uh, on measures that help to increase our national debt. She said $8 trillion worth of new spending under Donald Trump, and you all voted for it. Joe Biden was live tweeting that. The Democrats are going to use that in their ads. So that's something to consider. I thought Ron DeSantis did enough to keep his number two spot, Mm -hmm. but not for long. I think DeSantis would have probably done better with Trump next to him on the stage because people want to see them mix it up. They want to say, is he truly an alternative to Trump? Is he truly an alternative to Biden? Mm -hmm. But I thought he did better than he has been doing since it's been a rough couple months for him. Um, Chris Christie and Mike Pence, they are seasoned debaters on the stage, and it showed. Mike Pence seemed much more aggressive than he has been yeah. in the past. And he wants to be the person on that stage, Jessica, who can legitimately stake a claim to the successful Trump-Pence accomplishments of those four years. Mm-hmm. And he detailed them. I negotiated Remain in Mexico. I was there heading up the Coronavirus Task Force. I, I was a co-author of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act. I was there. And if you're there, you can do the job. Mm. You know what you're doing. Um, so I, look, I, again, I don't think anybody had a terrible night. I think Vivek Ramaswamy took some incoming and sort of deserved it because he is a never-ending TED Talk. And if you talk all the time, you're going to say something. <laughs> We've all end up saying something silly or something regrettable. But um, I thought the audience was difficult to predict. They were cheering mm. and booing at times that I thought were. So I think that's the challenge for these candidates moving forward, Jessica, which is which part of the, of even just that audience and the audience at home, what do they really want to hear on Ukraine and Putin? What do they truly want you to do on the border and immigration? And of course, the last point is the former president and an indisputed front runner in absentia. I thought they all pulled their punches about Donald Trump. Some of them had talked such a big game about Trump the coward, Trump's dodging the debate, where is he, this isn't fair to democracy. Boy, you heard very little of that from their actual podiums, I think for an essential reason. You cannot attack Donald Trump and then expect to engage his voters. So they're in a conundrum that way. They have to attack Donald Trump to beat him, but they can't alienate his voters. I thought going into the debate that we were going to see a lot more uh, attack on Governor DeSantis, right? The number two guy. And, and he was the number one guy on the stage, if you, you know, without Trump there. So, yes. but, but the incoming, as you know, was reserved really for Vivek. And it seemed as though Mike Pence had it planned out that he was going to go after Vivek. Um, he, yes. he was really on top of him. Is, is Vivek the, the threat? Is, is he the number two? Is, is Trump's base going to look at that stage and say, well, I think Vivek is our alternative, not Ron DeSantis. Right now, if you look at the polls and study the crosstabs, as of course I do as a geek, a polling geek, Jessica, you see that many of Vivek's support comes from people who also support Donald Trump or have a highly favorable opinion of President Trump. And Vivek doesn't attack him. Some of of Vivek's top staffers were Trump staffers, like Corey Lewandowski is working for Vivek Ramaswamy with President Trump's blessing, apparently. So that tells you something about the the synergy and the overlap there. But I think the reason they came for Vivek is because he represents the same kind of threat that they all faced and didn't see coming in 2016, which is this true outsider 
successful billionaire businessman who can legitimately call everybody else a professional politician and they can, and he can say, look, the, they've all had their chance. And sure, I don't have experience in government or politics, but isn't that refreshing? They all have so much experience and look where we are. Look at the debt, look at the crime, look at everything. Like what they've already had their chance. Give me a chance. So I'm not analogizing him to Trump, Donald Trump at all as a businessman or Donald Trump, um, the candidate, the successful candidate in 2016. But there are, there are shades of that to many people. Like they reference that in focus groups and polling. They see in Vivek Ramaswamy a younger, version of Trump's zeitgeist and his come from behind sort of underdog unexpected surge in 2016. Uh, More about Nikki Haley, because um, she also said, hey, look, don't talk, don't touch, just talk about Democrat spending. Let's talk about our own spending. Um, She was called, she was willing to call out her own party. And then, you know, her, it seemed like to me, her main theme or approach was not just, I have foreign policy experience, but we, if you want to do a national ban on abortion, talk to me the, after you find 60 Senate votes. You know, talk to me about Trump being the nominee when the, the polling shows he can get independence. She seemed like she was trying to, to, to be the practical candidate, right? Like, let's look at the reality of the situation as opposed to this sort of idealistic, ideal, uh, you know, politician. Yes, I don't care much for that. We don't have enough votes, so we can never try that argument. If that's true, Nikki should drop out because she doesn't have enough votes right now. She's losing to Donald Trump in her home state of South Carolina by significant double digits, as is Tim Scott, the senator from there. So I, I think that excuses lazy conduct when you get to Washington, which is we don't have the votes. You hear that all the time from both sides, but particularly Republicans. I actually think there's wisdom in having a national federal standard. I don't know why they're calling it an abortion ban. They're playing into the left's language. But I think a national standard um, after Dobbs makes sense only because, sure, it's a states' rights issue. And as Martha McCallum, who along with Brett Baer did a fantastic job as a moderator, is really holding them to account, asking the tough questions, reining them in. But as she said, look, it's gone to six different states, including so-called red states, and it's failed everywhere, these state abortion bans. But so it went back to the states. But if you don't have Washington with a federal role, then I never want to hear from these folks again, crime, homelessness, school choice. Those are all quintet policing. Those are quintessentially local issues. They can't have it both ways. So I think that the national standard of 15 weeks with exceptions for rape, incest, life of the mother, 15 weeks is second trimester. Mike Pence is absolutely correct. It's, it's our polling. 71% of Americans do support no abortion after 15 weeks when they hear that's the point at which doctors say babies can feel pain. Mm. And it's also long after you know you're pregnant, long after you know the gender of the baby, you see the limbs and with those three exceptions. So I say this because that is the way to say to New York, California, Illinois, Colorado, just to name four states that have abortion through the 39th week, Jessica, that's the way to say there, we're not going to just abandon you know, the unborn in those states. So I, mm. I'm not a big fan of the, we don't have the votes, therefore we can't try. You know what? Get everybody on the darn record. These senators and members of Congress work for you and me. I want them to say yes or no to legislation. I saw J.D. Vance tweet about this debate. You know, there were tons of social media reactions and tweets, of course, or I don't know, X postings. I don't know what to call them now. Um, so he wrote, though, something that I, really caught me. He said, a lot of the people on stage are nice people, but none of them is Trump and none will win the nomination. Let's end the charade and stop wasting Republican money attacking our inevitable nominee, Donald Trump, for president. Given the polling, given all the discussions that we're having, is he right? Is this a waste of time? 
Well, JD didn't didn't get to the top of the polls until Trump endorsed him right before his primary. So, and I, I I like Senator Vance very much. I'm so happy he's there. He's been really phenomenal. But under that suggestion, he should have dropped out of his race six months before he won. So no. Um, but I, I look. His point is well taken. That not since 2000 with George W. Bush, for whom they had cleared the field. It was hardly a competitive field at that point. We've just never had a Republican nominee so far ahead. And Donald Trump is leading every single one of those competitors in every single poll, in every single state and nationwide, period. So there is that point. However, we're the pro-competition, pro-free market party. Yeah. And we need to apply that to our primary process as well. And frankly, I've had these conversations with President Trump over the years and somewhat recently. He he thrives on competition. He thrives at people attacking him or pushing him or ma- making him answer questions. I just thought a lot of them pulled their punches. And look, I think what Senator Vance is saying will be more relevant and more ripe of a conversation in a few months as we get closer to the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary, South Carolina winner take all, and then of course Super Tuesday. But one debate in with one scheduled for about a month from now in, in at the Reagan Library with Fox Business, Jessica. I think we can wait on that. But his point is well taken. I just also I, I feel like when you clear the field for a candidate, even Donald Trump, who I felt did better in twenty sixteen as the underdog, underestimated, understaffed, under resourced than his bloated Spend like there's no tomorrow 2020 campaign, which was unsuccessful. They had $1.6 billion and they proved the old adage should be true. The fastest way to make a small fortune is to have a very large one to waste most of it. So that's not good either. Um, I think both DeSantis and Trump do better when they're underdogs. And we see that. But I'm saying this because you don't want him to be, to also just like the, the left to get ready for just him. Right now, they're not sure who it will be. They think it will be Donald Trump, but they're also forced to think about how to run against some of these other top candidates. Mm-hmm. Okay, finally, because I know you talk to you talk to voters and you hold focus groups, and you had said before the debate, people want substance, they want policy, but also that authenticity. And I wonder, just just this is sort of a broad question. Authenticity is linked to the the zinger, the one liner, the thing that viral, right? Because that's that's a candidate thinking on their feet quickly. You can't. You can't teach that, right? That's That comes with confidence. Do these people try and figure out ahead of time in debate prep how to have that moment? Or do they know you, you can't teach being quick on your feet? What an excellent question. I've been in so many debate prep sessions, including presidentially, and it's so true. Authenticity means you're literally being yourself. And I know that sounds like a tautology and obvious point, but you would you can't imagine, Jessica, how valuable and almost immeasurable that is for voters. They know it when they see it. It is hard to teach, but it's good to remind your candidates that when you're in a serious policy conversation, when you're addressing fraught and dark issues, chaos and crisis in our country and and abroad, don't forget to not look the part. I mean, don't be as dark and brooding and and angry and finger pointing because some people are watching this in clips. Some people are watching it with the sound off. I think it's an important balance to be a happy warrior, to speak your own language, and then also address the issue substantively. Again, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton's a great example of people who were seen as authentic, their true selves, and they never tried to be someone they weren't. So Donald Trump might use the wrong word, or or Bill Clinton um, may exaggerate, but people are like, there's charm, there's accessibility. Voters ask themselves two questions when they're looking at the debate stage. Do I like you? 
That's a classic living room test. Do I want to see you for the next four, eight years? Would I be proud if you're my president? Do I like you or are you off-putting? The second one is the more important one. It gets to the heart of what you ask. It's not, do I like you? It's, are you like me? Can we establish some connective tissue together? So you have to show some commonality with folks. And ironically, Ross Perot in 1992, billionaire, Donald Trump in 2016, billionaire, somehow made people feel, somehow made like blue collar workers and the forgotten man, forgotten woman feel like they were, they were right there with them. They were one of them. So there is a way to do that. I think it's been, I think it's been dogging DeSantis a little bit and it's a little unfair. I find him to be shy a little aloof. I get all that, but um, maybe a little obtuse sometimes, but I think he was trying to reclaim that by just being himself. And he probably scored a few points last night. I don't think he lost his number two spot right now, but that is the wrap on him now, which is, I didn't know that he didn't come off as authentic. I think you come off authentic when you have good answers and we just speak in your own voice. And the other thing they can all learn from Vivek is have some joy on the job. Be a happy warrior. Way too much gloom and doom, I think. Even though these are serious times, people don't need you to repeat the problems. We all know what the problems are, Jessica. You've got to lead with solutions and specifics. Yeah, and even Vivek himself said to Mike Pence, right, this is this is a dark moment. Like, d- yes. don't talk about, you know, being, you know, Americans are-, are Morning are in America, yeah. Yeah, morning, yeah, to that point. Wow, great, great conversation. Thank you so much, Kellyanne Conway, for joining us. All the best, Jessica. Take care. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. For the fifth consecutive year, the Department of Defense failed an audit, with reports indicating the agency tasked with protecting the homeland couldn't protect over half of its own assets. This comes as Congress is considering a top-line defense spending total of nearly $900 billion. Concerns about the failures have been bipartisan. At a recent oversight committee hearing, Congressman Andy Biggs asked Brett Mansfield, the Deputy Inspector General for Audits at the DOD Office of the Inspector General, how much has been spent on audit readiness. Since 2018, uh, audit support, which is responding to auditor requests, is right around $1 billion. And uh, audit remediation efforts, that is putting controls, developing corrective action plans, uh, that's around $3 billion. $3 billion? Yes, sir. So total about $4 billion. That's correct. And still can't man- uh, manage to pass a, a stinking audit. Asif Khan with the Government Accountability Office explain why this continues to happen. One is antiquated systems. Um, they are unable to produce reliable information. And the other one is a trained workforce, people who know the end-to-end DOD business processes and they know how to work new modern systems. Questions remain if the government can get its unaccounted for funds under control. Thomas Schatz is the president of Citizens Against Government Waste. Most importantly, the Department of Defense is the only agency that has failed to pass an audit. Uh, This was first required under the Chief Financial Officers Act of uh, 1989. And uh, since then, every other agency has been able to comply with the requirements. DOD continues to fail, even though they claim they would be able to pass. And that's unfortunate, because that means money that should be protecting the United States is going to waste. 
And this goes back to 1990, correct? And then you also have the Pentagon starting to go under audits starting in 2017 under the Trump administration. And the Pentagon has not passed an audit either. I believe we're at five now. Do we know what's contributing to this? Look, the, the Department of Defense is great at protecting our national security and terrible at accounting. Unfortunately, this has been an ongoing problem. I don't know if it's a lack of interest, a lack of capability, but the Department of Defense just cannot seem to provide the information that every other agency can provide and has provided. They keep putting off the year in which they will comply. It's later and later in time. It's not anything that's going to happen soon. And, and do we do we have any recollection of, of progress being made here? Certainly there's a number of articles about, you know, different aspects of the audits and where, where some of that money is going. But do we have we seen any progress over the last five years or even last couple of decades since this has been uh, going on, really? Well, in 2013, the Pentagon announced that the Marine Corps would be the first military service to attain a clean audit. But then uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense at the time, Chuck Hagel, uh, said uh, they're not going to make it. <laughs> they even had a ceremony in 2014 saying, hey, we've done it. But uh, about a year later, they said that that audit wasn't sufficient, wasn't professional, and uh, there wasn't enough evidence to support the information. And what do you think is to blame here? You know, uh, what do you think is contributing ultimately to this? But also, does Congress fall on any blame uh, as well as some past presidents, both, you know, going back to the Trump administration, the Biden administration, Obama, Bush, you name it, you know, because every year we see billions of dollars going towards the Department of Defense and the Pentagon, yet they're still not passing these audits. And then we're talking about the, the President Biden, uh, based off the most recent NDAA, we're going to see a, a record amount of funding for uh, defense spending. We also talk about the Trump administration, who was very excited to spend a lot on military as well. Does this kind of go back to multiple administrations? And or and what ultimately, where does the, the blame fall here? Well, this goes back uh, literally since the passage of the Chief Financial Officers Act. And in 1990, um, the Government Accountability Office added the Department of Defense to its high-risk list of programs. Uh, the 2021 high-risk report said there were six areas, including weapons, systems acquisition, that have been on the list since 1990. Uh, they, the Pentagon is just not being held accountable. Congress holds the purse strings. Congress needs to tell the Department of Defense they need to provide this audit. On the other end, if they say, we're not going to give you money if you don't, I don't think anybody would take that seriously because that's the one department that everyone agrees should be funded every year. And is there a political will issue here? Because, you know, military spending is something that does resonate well with voters. There is a little bit of that, but some of these examples are just absurd. Uh, in 2022, the audit of the Navy found $4.4 billion in previously untracked inventory. Uh, the Air Force identified $5.2 billion worth of variances, meaning numbers that don't match in its general ledger. Uh, there's been a report that overcharges sometimes reach 40 to 50% and more. And of course, there's the uh, Commission on Wartime Contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan, 31 to 60 billion lost to fraud and waste. Uh, it, these are big numbers, even in Washington, D.C. 
And Congress just needs to take off the kid gloves and say that they are serious about getting us. Maybe it will require more money for auditors. And that way they can get the job done. Now, we do have a. Uh... Congress taking up some oversight committee hearings, and a recent one was actually bipartisan, I believe, back in July. But some of what was being said there, you have uh, the director of financial management and assurance at the U.S. GAOs testifying that his investigations have shockingly been made unable to find any system within the DOD that works as intended. Then you also have the principal director of defense pricing and contracting with the DOD saying, quote, the standard... procurement system needs to be retired. It is a legacy system. What does that mean? Can you translate that for us? Well, unfortunately, 80% of the amount of money being spent for information technology systems across the federal government are legacy systems, meaning they are outdated. Some of them go back to the 1960s using a language called COBOL, which very few people even know how to fix if something goes wrong. It's a systemic problem throughout the federal government but it's particularly bad at the Pentagon. Uh, Look, this goes to the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, The accounting systems are just not up to date and up to speed throughout the federal government. Uh, They they finally in the Pentagon, for example, decided upon a uh, cloud system to bring all their information into the cloud, a multi-vendor system that they're getting around to. We don't expect that that will go well because as the testimony explained, procurement is also outdated. Uh, they just need to fix these problems. This is not anything that requires more than better management, but improving management is not as exciting as building a new weapon system. And I believe we're having some debates right now about you know certain plane systems, I believe new jets, but they don't really know if if the money is accounted for, if they can be accountable in that regard. But I think one other thing we should probably touch on, you mentioned this being a systemic issue within the federal government. Now, other agencies have been able to pass their audits over the years, but when we see this amount of waste and this amount of money unaccounted for within the defense aspects of our country, can we expect this in other government agencies too? There are irregularities in the other agencies, but again, they have passed the audit doesn't mean their systems are fantastic or their information technology is up to date. It simply means they can account for the money that is received and the money that is spent and explain that those numbers match. That's basically what an audit provides. Here's the revenue, here are the expenses, here's what we can't find, this is the audit. But in the Pentagon, they can't even get that far. And other piece of legislation your organization's currently pushing that you think would provide some type of progress here? Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, Citizens Against Government Waste has always supported uh, greater resources for auditing. For example, the inspectors general throughout the federal agencies, uh, the Government Accountability Office, the return on investment, return on the money that goes in is certainly worthwhile because these kinds of findings uh, are helpful to create more accountability. I think taxpayers want something very simple. They want to be able to go online, find out what's happening with their money at the click of a mouse. Here's what this agency is getting. This is how the money's being spent. They'd also like to see the results to make sure the money's being spent as intended. And I think that would go a long way to restoring at least some confidence in the government 
People want the government to work. They want it to be efficient. And these kinds of reports, especially at the Pentagon, are not helpful to achieve that objective. Now, I believe there is a piece of legislation that's being proposed. It's called the Audit the Pentagon Act. And I believe this has been proposed multiple different times under multiple different uh, Congresses. But it seems to always kind of die either in committee or it doesn't really make it very far on either the Senate or the House floor. But essentially what this would do in the, the most recent legislation being introduced, I believe, by Senator Grassley as well as Senator Sanders. So this is a very bipartisan bill. You also have Senator Rand Paul on this. You have Senator Mike Braun. Uh, and you have a couple other progressive senators on there uh, as well kind of joining them. And essentially, it pretty much just says if, if the Pentagon fails an audit, then I believe 1% of its budget has to go back to the Treasury for deficit reduction. Why does a piece of legislation like this run into so many roadblocks? Uh, again, uh, no one wants to cut the Pentagon's budget in that manner. Not no one, but the, uh, not a majority, at least so far. I mentioned earlier that Congress can threaten to withhold money or reduce spending on the Pentagon uh, in exchange for them passing the audit. Uh, and in 1% is a lot of money because the Pentagon is a big agency. Uh, so I don't think anyone necessarily wants to support that uh, or not enough members want to support it because they'd like to fully fund the Pentagon. This is a choice in their mind, probably between uh, protecting national security and getting better information. There's no reason the Pentagon can't do both. They just have not gotten there. Maybe the threat of this kind of legislation would be enough to get them to figure out how to provide a clean audit. Um, and if that's helpful, then that's that's worthwhile. And are we starting to see more members of Congress each legislative session we go through become more interested in this issue, or become more passionate about this issue? I know your organization said back in 2016 that this was starting to gain steam. Then ultimately, the Trump administration seemed pretty passionate about this when they got into office. Uh, are you seeing more members of Congress being more passionate about this? I think that there's an education part of this for the newer members of Congress. I think they'd probably be surprised to learn this information. And uh, there seems to be more accountability generally, especially in the House, with a lot more oversight than uh, taxpayers have had for many, many years. And these kinds of the kinds of hearings that they've been holding will be helpful to provide people the information they need to show that this is something that that should be done. And, and I think also, you know, we have a lot of discussions about how much money should be sent to Ukraine, but there are also reports that there is a significant amount of aid being sent to Ukraine from the United States that is unaccounted for. Does that shock you at all? And is that also a concern? Well, I don't think it's going to be as bad as what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan for the, a lot of reasons, of course, not leaving tanks and uh, equipment and uh, you know, buildings behind uh, in, in Ukraine, clearly, uh, when that conflict uh, ends. Uh, I, I think it's easier to track. I know that the House in particular is trying to hold the Pentagon accountable for where and how that money is being spent. And again, that's what taxpayers want to know. What are we getting for our money? Whether it's at the Pentagon or any other agency, it's their hard-earned money that is either being wasted or spent efficiently. And unfortunately, far more often it's being wasted. Anything else we're missing on here that you think we need to talk about? Well, I think that the idea that 
the federal government cannot provide timely and accurate information and transparency about how they're spending money is something taxpayers should care about. Because if they know where and how it's being spent, it's easier for Congress to decide what to do next. Congress can only act based on the information provided by the agencies. The policies are argued about, there's been a lot of changes in how money's being spent and priorities throughout the government under the Biden administration, as we know. But at least if Congress is getting accurate information, for example, the Navy audit with the $4.4 billion in untracked inventory, maybe Congress is sending $4.4 billion in the appropriations bills because the Navy says, hey, we need this to get these particular pieces of equipment that we need, but they still have them, they just can't find them. That's not a good way to run the federal government and certainly not a good way to run the Pentagon. So there could be a lot of savings, there could be a lot more effective and efficient use of money for our national security if the Pentagon provides a clean and accurate audit. And did you see anything that stood out to you in the NDAA that could be maybe concerning? I know we haven't gotten the official bill yet because there's still negotiations going on, but between the House and the Senate bill, is there anything that stands out to you about them that could be a, a red flag when it comes to waste? Uh, not necessarily. Um, again, uh, if, if 60, this is also from the DOD audit, 61% uh, of $3.5 trillion in assets uh, cannot be accounted for. It simply means that everything Congress is doing is based on inaccurate and incomplete information. So there will clearly be money spent that is unnecessary simply because they don't know that it's already being done or already being spent somewhere else and just not being accounted for throughout the Pentagon. All right. He's Tom Schatz. We thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington, with Ukraine being a contentious issue at the first Republican primary debate, how will the future of funding the war play out? And it won't be a marathon, but rather a sprint for Congress to fund the government and avoid a shutdown. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thank you for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.